The text is from the Gospel to Luke, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And it is the, if you hadn't noticed, it is the first Sunday of Advent, which is why there is only one candle lit. Okay, if you were wondering, did somebody forget to light the candles, which is what Emma Moana thought, um, it is actually the first Sunday of Advent, these four Sundays leading up to uh, Christmas. When, hey, as a church, traditionally during Advent, uh, the church looks back to Jesus' first coming and looks forward to his second coming. And we're going to do that, as I say, by looking at this passage that Jennifer read to us, this passage from Luke's Gospel about the announcement from the angel Gabriel to Mary. And if you're a Christian, if you're used to going to church, if you are not numbed by this, um, by its over-familiarity, maybe you're not used to coming to church, okay, this account may have some of you thinking, angels? Really? I mean, no one believes in angels. These aren't real. And, and either consciously or subconsciously, you can be sat there thinking, you read these accounts in the Gospels at Christmas time, and you can be sat there subconsciously or consciously thinking, hey, these aren't real. These aren't real accounts. This didn't really happen. We're in the realm of fairy tales. And the only reason that people like Luke or Mary believed in things like angels was because that was their culture that they'd grown up in. And we know better than to believe that stuff now. Okay, but what if the reason that you don't believe in stuff like angels is because of the culture that you've grown up in? Okay, why when, maybe one reason why you read this and think, yeah, yeah, this didn't really happen, this is probably the realm of fairy tales. Maybe it's because of the culture that you have grown up in. Because you and I, we live in a disenchanted, 
scientific materialistic culture where you are told that no one believes in this stuff nowadays. When in reality, the whole rest of the world does, and they think it is you who are irrational not to believe in angels and demons. Because come on, can't you see? They're everywhere. The spiritual world is everywhere. Just open your eyes. Okay, so it's not just, as C.S. Lewis once said, that we can be guilty of chronological snobbery in thinking that these people in the past just weren't as intelligent as us. It's that when we assume that the only things that are real are the things that we can see or that we can bring to the boil in the lab, we are guilty of cultural snobbery as well. We're captive to our culture. Okay, but of course, Luke doesn't begin his gospel with the angel appearing to Mary. He begins it with the angel appearing to Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, who was, chapter 1, verse 7, barren. And in the Bible, whenever a barren or an unloved woman takes a stage or an angel appears, or both of those happen, you know something is about to happen. Okay, so when Luke begins his gospel with a barren Elizabeth and an angel appearing and a young virgin called Mary and a baby about to be born, you just know heaven is about to break in. First point then, the longed-for king. The longed-for king. Now, C.S. Lewis is probably best known for his children's book, the books, The Chronicles of Narnia. But he also wrote, and I don't know many of you have read it, he also wrote a trilogy of adult scientific, uh, sorry, science fiction books. And the last in the trilogy is called That Hideous Strength. And I think it's a great book. And in the story, Merlin... Merlin was the wizard in King Arthur's court. Merlin is raised from centuries of sleep to fight one last battle against the forces of evil. You know, Sue and I, when we were in um, uh, the UK, we lived in a, the city, uh, city of Winchester, which it was the ancient capital of England. And there's a part of Winchester which is called Sleeper's Hill, And Sleepers Hill is where, apparently, King Arthur is supposedly buried with the Knights of the Round Table. And they're sleeping, waiting until England is in trouble, whereupon he will arise from sleep, ride out to the rescue and save England. I think the problem is that England has been in so much trouble that he probably hasn't been able to decide which particular crisis to wake up for and ride out for. Okay, but that desire for a king, that desire for a strong leader who will come to our defense and defeat our enemies, that's a powerful one, isn't it? And for the people of Israel, it was one that refused to die. You see, David, King David, had been their great king. He had secured their borders. He had defeated their enemies. He had established justice. 
at the same time as loving God and his people. And so David became the gold standard of kings, of all future kings. And yet, if you know your Bible, you know that David was far from perfect, was he? I mean, he was a, he was a flawed character. Did he bring justice? Sure he did. But he was also a source of injustice, taking another man's wife. Did he defeat Israel's enemies? Sure he did. But he was also willing to arrange the death of one of his loyal soldiers, the man whose wife he had taken, at the hands of those same enemies. And so as a result, David's family was racked and ravaged by sin. But David was the gold standard for all future kings. And yet he was also the high watermark because from him onwards, things just went downhill. His son Solomon married foreign women and introduced pagan worship and taxed the people to breaking point. And so when his son took the throne, the northern tribes rebelled and the kingdom was split. And with only a few exceptions, things went from bad to worse from then on. And even the good kings, even, even the bright ones on the horizon, even they made dubious foreign policy decisions or got involved in military adventures which were not theirs to fight. Okay, but if you think about it, that's the problem with leaders, isn't it? Leaders let you down. You hope this next one's going to be the real deal. I'm going to vote for him or for her. This next one's going to be the real deal. They are going to turn the tide. They're going to restore hope. Maybe even restore the nation or the organization. This one's going to stand for justice. This one's going to defeat our enemies, whoever those enemies are. But what happens? At best, they never quite live up to our expectations and our hopes. And at worst, they are revealed to be deeply flawed individuals. And yet... It was that longing for a righteous king that sustained Israel. And they clung to God's promises to David that he would have a son whose rule would last forever. They clung to the, the promises to the prophets, through the prophets, that a king would come who would cut off the chariots of war and speak peace to the nations and whose rule would be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so while there are some leaders, let's be honest, whose term we wish would come to an end before its allotted time, and while Lord Acton wrote, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, Great men are always bad men. This king, this king who has been promised, he was going to be different. Okay, but again, it's not just Israel who longed or longs for leaders like that, is it? I think there's a sense in which we all do. Something inside us longs for a leadership that seeks the good of those it leads that establishes justice, that sees right win over the wrong, that vanquishes the enemies of all that is good, a leadership that puts things right. We long for those kind of leaders. And yet, this world repeatedly fails to give us 
the kind of leaders we long for. And so maybe, like ancient Israel, what we're really longing for is a leader from another world. Which is why our ears should prick up at what Luke tells us in verse 27. That the angel was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. What does that tell you? It tells you that something is beginning to stir in the line of the kings. And then the angel says to Mary, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Okay, David and all the descendants, his descendants that took the throne, okay, they were called sons of God. But this baby, this baby that Mary is going to carry is going to be the son of God. He's going to be the ultimate royal son. He's going to be the one who, unlike all previous rulers, will reign in perfect submission to his heavenly father and in perfect relationship with his heavenly father. He is going to be the one king in whom the perfect rule and reign of heaven and earth are going to meet at last. And then the angel says, verse 32, And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Great promises. But how does this longed-for king come? Because when Mary finally gives birth to him, she doesn't wrap him up in silk sheets, does she? She doesn't get to lay him in an ornately carved cot in a gilded palace, does she? She lays him in a manger, an animal's feeding trough, in the outhouse of an inn that has no room for him. And when he began his ministry, does he base himself in Jerusalem, the city of kings? No, he goes to Nazareth. Now, when I was a teenager, we moved to a town, our family moved to a town called Bognor Regis. You never, if you come from Bognor Regis, you never admit to coming from Bognor Regis, okay, because it's a bit of a dump. And so we would say, we come from Chichester. I even did it at the door this morning, okay, it's just instinctive. We come from Chichester, because Chichester is a nice cathedral city. It, it sounds so much posher than Bognor, okay. Jesus chose Bognor. At least he chose Nazareth. Because when Nathaniel, who had become one of his disciples, was told that is where Jesus came from, Nathaniel scoffs, Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But that's where Jesus chose. A few days ago, Sue and I went to Schilliger's Garden Centre. Okay, always worth a visit at Christmas. How many of you have been to see the Christmas decorations at Schilliger's? Yeah, just a few of us are willing to admit it. Okay, it's, hey, you should, you should, you should, I think all of you should go and do a bit of cultural exegesis. Okay, go there and see what this is saying about our culture. Okay, this year they have outdone themselves. Schilliger's Garden Centre, okay, they have outdone themselves. Because not only is there the usual Arctic Christmas scene with the moving polar bears, there is also, get this, a stunning underwater Christmas scene. 
complete with Christmas coral reefs and illuminated jellyfish hanging from the ceiling. And I know you're all going to rush out and get this. Okay, you can buy gold lobsters to grace your Christmas dining table. It's extraordinary. Okay, think of all that opulence and compare that to the arrival of this longed-for king whose birth this opulence is supposed to be celebrating. Because when he came, there were no golden lobsters on the table waiting for him, were there? And despite all the advance notice of how glorious his reign would be, his birth, his life in Nazareth, and his death, they were anything but glorious. And you know what's extraordinary? To a man, the New Testament writers, most of whom who knew him, to a man they say, he was and is the king. And while he came in poverty, he is going to come again in glory. Second point then, the coming king. The longed for king, the coming king. Now in Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, Aragorn is heir to the throne of men. Except when Frodo the Hobbit first meets him, Aragorn looks nothing like a king, does he? But Tolkien writes... All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. And the Apostle Paul calls Jesus of Nazareth not just a king, but the king of kings. The king over every king. And Peter, a man who knew Jesus better than any, who was well aware of his lack of earthly glory, says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And John wrote, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And when he's talking about clouds, he's not talking about English weather. Okay? He's not talking about meteorology. Okay? He's looking back to Daniel's vision, to one like a son of man who approached the throne of the Ancient of Days with the clouds of heaven. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And when he does come again, John says, he will come like a conquering king. And Paul tells us that when he does, he will once and for all put down his enemies by the splendor of his coming. It's why Paul writes, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, because one day, whether you or I like it or not, everyone will acknowledge he really is the king of kings, the ultimate king, the one to whom we must give our absolute allegiance. Okay, but there lies a problem, doesn't it? 
Because while at one level we long for a leader that this world cannot give us, if we're honest, none of us want to be ruled. You know, in our highly, you know, we live in a highly individualistic culture and we like the idea of justice, provided it's other people who are having the justice. Okay, we like the idea of enemies being conquered, provided it's my enemies who are being conquered and I'm not one of them. We like the idea of right being established, provided it's my version of what is right. In short, in our highly individualistic culture, we like the idea of a king, provided that I'm the king, or at least that I get to keep the rule and authority over my life. It's why in Romans 5, Paul describes us as God's enemies. We're instinctively, by nature, opposed to his rule over us. And so sadly, the coming king is also going to be an unwelcome king. You know, in his book, The Last Word, the American philosopher and atheist Thomas Nagel wrote, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. In other words, Nagel wants order in the universe, but no creator. He wants justice, but no judge. He wants right to triumph, but no king who does the triumphing. Because if there is a king, then there's an authority problem. There's an authority problem, a problem of who has authority over my life. Okay, but how do you deal with that problem? You see, for those of us who are already Christians, we welcome, we celebrate at Advent the, the coming of the King. And yet, what are you supposed to do with those areas of your life where you go, well, he's my King, but actually this area, at the moment, this, I want to keep control of this. This is for me to decide on. And there's a fight for control going on. When you know that things are not as Christ the King wants them to be, but if you're honest, you're okay with keeping control. Or if you're not yet a Christian, what are you supposed to do when you begin to realise, if you're honest enough, and you admit with Nagel that you've got an authority problem, that your objections to Christianity are based less on fact and more on authority and who has it in your life. That you like what Christianity stands for. Maybe, even you, maybe you even like the example of Christ or Christ the teacher. It's Christ the king that you don't like. What are you supposed to do about that? Third and final point then, the servant king. The longed for king, the coming king, the servant king. I was once talking to a a young guy who had become a Christian out of a, uh, out of a Muslim background. And what he said really struck me, and it, it stayed with me. Okay? He, he described what it was that got him over the line to believing in Christ. 
And he said it was this account in John's gospel of the crowd wanting to make Jesus king by force because they were so taken by him. And this young guy said, that's when I realized Jesus really was the king. Because if that crowd had come to Muhammad to make him king, Muhammad would have said, great idea, bring it on, where's the throne? But the gospel says, seeing that's what they wanted to do, Jesus withdrew from there. That it was Jesus' refusal to be a king, like every other king, that told this young guy he is the king. Because he's the one to whom Satan offered all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory, if only he would worship him, if only he would let something other than God be God. And Jesus replied, be gone, Satan. He's offered the power that corrupts and he refuses it. Why? Because like the angel said to Mary, he is going to be great. He's the one truly great man who's not a bad man because he's the true and ultimate son of David, the one man who is really after God's own heart. And yet, why was he tried by Pilate on the charge of claiming to be king? And the soldiers mocked him as king, dressing him in a robe, giving him a reed for a scepter, crowning him with thorns. And he's nailed to the cross. And what words are nailed above his head? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it's as if the cross has become his throne. But think about it. Why does the one who could call legions of angels to fight his corner not call on them? Why does the one with absolute unlimited authority allow men like Pilate, whom power has corrupted, have power over him? Why? Because of you, because of me, because as he gives himself into their hands, he's giving himself in place of us. Because at the cross, he bore the wrath of God for all those times when we've insisted, I'm the king. And as you look at him hanging on the cross, you are looking at the king of kings giving his life for rebels like us. As Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're not yet a Christian, let that be what gets you across the line. As you see the King promised from ages past, leave the glory of heaven and become a nobody in his birth, someone from Nazareth in his life, and your substitute in his death. And he does it to save you when you were his enemy. Let that melt your heart. That's what can solve your cosmic authority problem and cause you to cede control, because that's where you see, that's the measure of his love for me. But it's also what we do it for us who are already Christians. You see, 
just being told that you should do something sets off this battle of authority inside your heart, doesn't it? You're told to do something and you don't want to do it. Christ is my king, but I want to stay king in this area. And so if you are to surrender that area, you need to want something, you need to desire something, you need to love something more than you being in control. You need to see something more beautiful than that. And what is more beautiful than the king of all kings humbling himself and becoming a servant for you so that, as Paul says in Romans, you can reign in life with him. A king who you can entrust every area of your life to, even this area that you want to control, because you know if he loves me like this, he's never going to abandon me, he's never going to let me down. And that is what will fill your heart with awe and wonder this Advent. Not Schillicke's Christmas decorations, amazing as they are, but the beauty and the mercy of a God who gives himself for us. Let's pray.